attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, the people's comic book podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and my millions, and millions of fans across the world love listening to me talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But probably not Jeff Loeb comics, I'd imagine. See, I'm not real big on Jeff Loeb comics in most cases, and I got my reasons for that too. Don't get me wrong, he seems like a hell of a nice guy, so it's really not anything personal here, but when it comes to the work, you know, the stuff I pay money for, that stuff, eh, usually even in the best cases, it's hit or miss, and in the worst cases, Ugh, don't even get me started. But that's not always the case. Way back in episode number 32 of this show, I talked at length about The Long Halloween. And I had mostly positive things to say about it, too. Which shocked the hell out of a lot of people, because I guess they were expecting me to bash the crap out of Loeb again. But The Long Halloween just didn't deserve it. I thought it was a fun little noir story filled with cops and robbers and deep dark shadows and fights and punches and femme fatales and all that other shit. Just lots and lots of fun. The Long Halloween was a kind of, sort of, continuation of Batman Year One. Basically, it picked up with the characters more or less in that same set of circumstances. Loeb's agenda was to show the transition that Gotham City underwent. One day, Gotham City was run by mobsters, dirty cops, and crooked politicians. The next day, seemingly, it was run by costumed supervillains, so what the hell happened? Loeb saw story potential there, and thus was born the Long Halloween. But there were some dangling story threads left over from The Long Halloween, plus we all know how much comic book types love sequels. I mean, shit, almost the entire comic book industry can be thought of as a sequel in some way, right? Plus, everybody loves Tim Sale's work on Batman, and that alone should be enough to justify anything, up to and including another Jeff Loeb story. So, without any further ado, let's start talking about Batman, Dark Victory. It's been several months after the, co- the killer known as Holiday was apprehended. Holiday was, in fact, Alberto Falcone, attempting to one-up his father and prove he's more than capable of handling the family business. 
Janice Porter has replaced Harvey Dent as Gotham City's district attorney and despises Batman's methods, although Commissioner Gordon tries to sway her opinion on that a little bit. Bruce blames himself for letting Harvey go beyond any hope of redemption and become a villain himself, serving time in Arkham like many of the people that Dent put there. Batman becomes even more of a loner, refusing Gordon's assistance as well as Catwoman's. During a visit to Dent's cell, there's a large breakout of most of the inmates of Arkham. Alberto's not one of them, though. Batman insists that Sophia Gigante had some hand in the breakout, but she assures him that uh, she doesn't, as since their last visit, she now uses a wheelchair and has a brace on her head. Janice Porter allows the release of Alberto, as long as he's to be in his mother, his brother Mario's custody, and stay with their father, uh, stay within their father's old cabin. Shortly after his release, that is to say, Alberto's release. Clancy O'Hara's body is found hanging from the Gotham City Bridge, his old patrol. Taped to his chest is a newspaper clipping headlined, Holiday Goes Free, with the hangman riddle written on it. Batman interrogates the Riddler, the only man whom Holiday did not kill, but the Riddler assures Batman that he hasn't the faintest idea as to why Holiday didn't kill him. Meanwhile, in the Falcon estate, Alberto begins to hear his father's voice, telling him to continue his work as the Holiday Killer. Soon after, the Riddler meets with Batman, saying that the killer assumes that another person's playing with their twisted game. The corrupt ex-commissioner, Gil Loeb, is found hanging from his stairs inside his mansion, with another riddle taped to his chest. Later, there's another hanging. Another corrupt officer, this time Detective Flass, is found hanging outside his strip club. Batman believes that Alberto's the newly dubbed hangman killer, or else he knows who the killer is. He interrogates Alberto, but learns nothing, and then leaves to search for Harvey Dent. Entering the sewers, Batman fights Solomon Grundy, who leads Batman to Harvey's new office in the sewers. Searching his office, Batman gets interrupted by an explosion, and from there, Batman loses Two-Face underground. In Gordon's office, he's talking and trying to persuade Janice into accepting Batman, and she reluctantly agrees, as long as the Batman obeys the law. Another hanging. Sergeant Pratt, who also has another note on his chest. All the notes have come from Harvey's old desk as the district attorney, which tends to suggest that Harvey is the killer. During the hangman killings, Bruce is also struggling with his relationship with Selina Kyle, so much so that she eventually leaves Gotham, leaving him only a note. Janice Porter's been shown meeting with the mysterious man several times throughout the investigation, and it's eventually revealed to be Harvey Dent. Later, another hanging's found, this time in front of Harvey's old house. Officer Merkel's found with another note on his chest. Harvey now completely taken over by his darker side, conducts his own investigation of the escaped criminals, questioning all of them as to the identity of the hangman killer. Gordon's almost hanged on the roof of the precinct, but gets saved by Two-Face, who assures everyone that he's not the hangman killer. Multiple attacks on organized crime by the Joker are, pe are perpetrated, and he eventually assaults the Falcon estate, attacking the members of the family before being apprehended by Batman. Another hanging's found inside the garage of the precinct. Elsewhere, 
Batman adopts a young Dick Grayson uh, because his family is murdered during a mob sabotage at his circus act's uh, performance, and Dick begins training to become Batman's new partner. Elsewhere, during a police raid on the underground hideout of Two-Face, Batman assists Gordon, and they eventually catch Two-Face. During all of this, Alberto's still hearing his father's voice telling him to continue his work as the holiday killer. He's eventually pushed to the point of almost committing the murder of his sister, but resists the temptation. Two-Face is put on trial, meanwhile, but escapes when the other criminals from Arkham assault the court. Another hanging of a police officer, and Two-Face is still the prime suspect. Janice is kidnapped by the Joker and Scarecrow, and when she argues with Two-Face, he kills her. They dump the body into Alberto Falcone's bed to convince him that he killed her. Finally, Alberto breaks the facade inside his bedroom, and it's revealed that the calendar man had secretly placed microphones all over the house in order to manipulate Alberto. Batman investigates Mario Falcone's penthouse and almost gets hanged himself, but uh, manages to free himself due to metal braces he uses to protect his neck, after which he attacks Catwoman. She reveals that she investigated Sophia Gigante and that she could find no record of her vis- visiting a physical therapist, despite the fact that she uses a wheelchair. After escaping the estate, Sophia and Alberto meet inside the family mausoleum, where she smothers him, telling him that he's not a real Falcone. Inside the Batcave, Dick correctly translates the clues left behind, inferring that they could be interpreted to mean that they are protecting the Falcone crime family, and Batman scrambles to leave. At his hideout, Two-Face is attacked when several explosions rip through his lair and the criminals attempt to escape during the middle of the attack. Finally, the hangman's killer is revealed to be Sophia Gigante. She'd killed everyone involved with helping Harvey become district attorney and thus further his career, and left clues to frame him for the murders. Her final trick was pretending to be confined to to using a wheelchair full-time so that she wouldn't be a suspect in all of this. A fight ensues during which Sophia gets shot by Two-Face and then Batman pursues Two-Face. Dick, now wearing an outfit of his own and calling himself Robin, intervenes in the shootout and assists Batman in recapturing all the criminals. Joker shoots Two-Face and he falls, presumably to his death. Elsewhere... Mario Falcone's now a broken man, and thus tortures his family's estate, leaving his family destroyed. Later, Selina Kyle arrives at Carmine's grave and confesses the truth that she knows he was her father, but she can't prove it yet. Elsewhere, Two-Face is revealed to have possession of Carmine Falcone's body encased in ice, presumably frozen by Mr. Freeze. Elsewhere, Dick takes an oath with Batman in the Batcave to help him in his crusade against crime. The end. So, what did I think? Well, it's not breaking news for any of you to point out that Dark Victory isn't quite as well regarded as The Long Halloween. And I don't think that's a reflection on Dark Victory so much as it's an acknowledgement that The Long Halloween is such a beloved story. As for me, though, I think that I enjoy The Long Halloween and Dark Victory 
pretty much equally. Obviously, Dark Victory is a, a, a continuation of the Long Halloween, and we see the consequences of that story. At least in my opinion, too often in comics, some pretty major shit happens, and we don't really see the fallout from it. But when you think about it, there's no way Batman and Gordon could go through everything that happened in the Long Halloween without having something to show for it. I mean, yeah, the Falcone crime family had been put through the ringer. And yes, they definitely nabbed the Holiday Killer. But at the same time, Gordon and Batman lost Harvey Dent. He'd more or less become everything that he'd sworn to destroy. And because of that, Batman's losing touch with everyone. And Gordon's losing the ability to relate to his own family. Naturally, you'd expect Batman and Gordon to reach out to one another, but here's the thing. They can't. And that pretty well lines up with how I've come to view the relationship between Batman and Gordon over time. They're allies. They're not family, and they're not really friends. At least, not in the traditional sense of the word. They can't depend on one another. Not like that. Gordon knows that Batman's always going to have his back when it comes to the war on crime and corruption in Gotham City. But these aren't characters who can or necessarily even want to hang out with one another and knock back some beers. There's a certain level of separation that they've got to have. And in Dark Victory, that separation turns into estrangement, at least at first. And that's because that neither character really has the emotional faculties, or for that matter, even really the desire, to share their burdens with each other. And like I say, that rings true for me. I don't think Jeff Loeb's inventing a bunch of bullshit that's foreign to the material in this case. It really does seem like a pretty logical extension of Batman and, and Gordon's working partnership. I guess what I'm saying is it works for me. Anyway, what doesn't work for me through most of these stories is Selina. Now, yes, 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 she thinks Carmine Falcone's her father. And you know what? There's even a separate miniseries dedicated to, to telling that story. The trouble is, I just don't give a damn. The Long Halloween and Dark Victory both have enough going on with, without throwing in Selena's bullshit, too. It just feels unnecessary to me. Another thing that works for me is what the Long Halloween and Dark Victory do, I guess from a technical standpoint. Because like I said before, Batman, year one, showed the mob and corrupt police running the show. The issues released immediately after year one all showed supervillains causing the trouble in Gotham City. So, the hell happened. What both the Long Halloween and Dark Victory claim to show is the transition from mobsters to costumed supervillains controlling the Gotham City underworld. The Long Halloween started that process. The crime family's ranks got completely decimated. Dark Victory finishes the job. The Falcone crime family is basically smithereens by the end of the story. 
The criminal element in Gotham City is now completely dominated by garish, costumed supervillains with sci-fi accessories, rather than mobsters. The change is complete. But before that happens, the villainy is mostly propelled by pinstriped gangsters. They've got fedoras, long trench coats, tommy guns, and plenty of references to family and codes of honor. These are 1940s movie-style gangsters, and I just love it. Yes, it's anachronistic to show Batman squaring off with the Mafia, but it still works for me. Speaking of which, I really dig the crime noir tone that the Long Halloween and Dark Victory aspire to. The writing's a major part of all that, and I guess a good example of what I mean here is Janice Porter's a fairly classic femme fatale who's a lot more than she appears to be. Loeb carefully peels back her history, layer by layer, until you find out that she's basically spent years stalking Harvey Dent. But for as solid as the writing tends to be, all of that would be incomplete without Tim Sale's art. Now, I'm not a Tim Sale groupie or anything like that, but the guy's got a real talent when it comes to Batman. His work definitely has that grit and darkness that we all expect from Batman stories, but it's never close to being too realistic or anything like that. Characters' proportions are exaggerated and stylized. Buildings are impossibly tall. Shadows are impossibly dark. It, it's just, it's amazing work. The Joker is probably one of the better examples in this entire series. His head and teeth are fucking huge. I mean, Natalie Portman doesn't have a mouth as gigantic as the Joker's. Now, if Tim Sale wasn't so popular, I'd say that his art's an acquired taste, but, but a shitload of people all seem to have acquired it, so maybe it's not as esoteric as I think. Still, as to the story at large, there are a couple of continuity goofs going on here. Flass is one of the hangman's victims. The trouble here is that he's labeled John Flass here in Dark Victory, but year one... Ooh, year one identified him as Arnold Flass. Now, sure, you can no-prize that by saying that John Flass is the guy's legal name, but he preferred going by his middle name. Fine, whatever, but a quick reread of, of year one would have prevented this from ever happening in the first place. It's a fuck-up. I don't care what excuses you can think of to let Loeb off the hook here. It's a fuck-up. Another thing is is that Merkel gets hung too. Now, this one's a little trickier. Sure, Merkel showed up in The Dark Knight Returns, but that's out of continuity. And besides, nothing's written in stone that the guy has to survive, or for that matter, that the Merkel that we see in The Dark Knight Returns is necessarily the same guy from year one. But, again, it just felt like somebody was asleep at the wheel on this one. But there were some really neat ideas going on in, all, in, in these stories, too. For example, I seriously dig the concepts of the, the uh, penguins that we saw from the sixth issue. I mean, to me, I think the penguin really is vain enough to make his underlings wear penguin masks and use umbrella guns. Another thing, 
about the penguin is is this is obviously a version of the penguin highly influenced by Batman Returns. Fine by me, as I've always thought that the Batman Returns version of the penguin has been criminally underrated. So it's always worked just fine for me that we're basically seeing the Tim Burton version of that character here in The Long Halloween and Dark Victory. Still, you just wouldn't believe the outrage that I've seen expressed on some message boards about this version of the Penguin. People otherwise in love with these comics bitch and complain all the fucking time that the one flaw these comics have is that they're using the wrong version of the Penguin. And keep in mind, this is strictly an aesthetic thing for them. They've got absolutely no objection to the Penguin's portrayal in these comics. It's just his appearance that bugs them. But the way I look at it, so many of Batman's enemies have some kind of deformity or another that it's kind of illogical for the Penguin to be one of the very few who doesn't have something about him that's completely fucked up. The Joker's got bleached skin. Poison Ivy's been poisoned into oblivion, and her body composition has changed forever because of it. Two-Face has gotten hideously scarred. Clayface is Clayface. Man-Bat's a mutated beast. On and on and on. So, just why the hell shouldn't the Penguin have deformities of his, uh, of his own? It just doesn't scan for me. Keep in mind, though, I've got nothing against the non-deformed version of the Penguin, but... The, the one that is deformed really works for me in a big bad way. Anyway, other stuff. Another thing that Dark Victory does really well is confirm Alberto Falcone's guilt in the holiday murders. A lot of his internal dialogue makes no sense whatsoever unless he's holiday. But I'm a realist. This is Jeff Loeb that we're talking about here. He spun more stories filled with plot holes and inconsistencies than I could ever hope to count in one lifetime. And so because of that, he may very well announce someday that Gilda, Harvey, or someone else was Holiday. It it could happen. And if it does, the asterisk from my long Halloween episode applies here. Jeff Loeb will will officially join that illustrious group of comic book pros who can expect to never receive another dime out of me. I've, I've just been pushed to the breaking point with this guy's writing. And that would be the jump the shark moment for me. At that point, I would be completely done with Jeff Loeb. Now, to be fair, I've heard and read quite a number of interviews with Loeb over the years, and he always, not sometimes, not occasionally, always comes off like a supremely cool guy. In fact, he actually comes off like the kind of dude you'd want to hang out with and drink beers and just listen to him tell stories because you know he's got some good stories. He just seems like that kind, of, that kind of guy to me. He just seems cool. But no matter how nice the dude may seem, I've got a pretty dim view of him as a writer. That having been said, though, The Long Halloween is a good fun story, and I recommend it. You remember that asterisk that I mentioned earlier? Here it is. 
like I said, The Long Halloween is a good, fun story, and I recommend it. Asterisk. Unless, at some point in the future, Loeb says the killer wasn't Alberto. If that's the case, I recommend using this trade as toilet paper and Mr. Loeb can say goodbye to any kind of money from me ever again. People, that still applies. The Long Halloween and Dark Victory make absolutely no sense. No sense whatsoever. Unless Alberto's holiday. Then, and only then, are the stories entertaining at all. If anybody except Alberto alone is holiday, the stories are an incomprehensible fucking mess. Basically just like the rest of Loeb's comic book work. But in this one case, I'm willing to give Loeb the benefit of the doubt. Unless, as I say, he announces the killer was someone else, and then he and I are done. Professionally. But until or unless that day comes, I think it'd be fair to say that I really dig Dark Victory. I love the style and tone of it. I love the noir elements. It's always it's always fun to, to watch Batman kick the shit out of gangsters and bowler hats. And overall, this story's a great, fun read. If you've never read it before, put aside your anti-Jeff Loeb biases and just give the comics a chance. I know, I know, it's Jeff Loeb. But you can try. Just try. As for me, I'm going to take a break. Be right back after these messages. government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release serving as expendable agents for impossible missions succeed and I'll shave time off your sentences if we don't you'll be dead any other stupid questions the suicide squad ran by Amanda Waller I'm Amanda Waller I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces and there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics, Suicide Squad, and Checkmate. Mostly monthly from Headspeaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X and under Headcasts over at headspeaks.com. We can also be found on Facebook and Google Plus under Task Force X. Task Force X. Check it out. Or you'll answer to the wall. Nobody screws the wall!
Hello. We didn't see you there. Welcome to Comic Book Fight Club. My name is Jif S. Fishman, Esquire. And I am Gene Theodore Hendricks. Here at Comic Book Fight Club, we sit fireside, sipping our brandy, and discussing who would win in a bout of fisticuffs with other members of the comic book Illuminati. Yes, you caught us at a good time as Kevin Smith, Stan Lee, and the late Bob Kane just went on a beer and nacho run. Have you ever wondered who would be victorious in a bout? Galactus? or Unicron? How about the Incredible Hulk versus the Monster Doomsday? What about G.I. Joe versus the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., or the equally important bout of the Snorks versus the Smurfs? And of course, the Titanic duel between Archie and Jimmy Olsen? And you can expect the intelligent and erudite debates to sound something like this. But I always thought Transformers fans were intelligent and literate, so they should see that Galactus has to be the winner. Like, he's hungry. Oh, I'm so <laughs> hungry. I'm going to get weaker, and, 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 and Reed Richards is going to be able to beat me. I don't know anything about Rob other than uh, he was defeated by Parker Brothers. Oh, it's, I mean, back, to, back to one of Sean's points, saying he got out of the, out of the Silac. You know, every time he's gotten out of that in any story, he has to get put back in it because he's a bitch. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh, ah, 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 no! 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 She, no! I tap she, out! I tap out! You are I a sick, out. sick man! I'm not familiar with the last one. I need. I might have to hit Google Image Search here. So won't you join us for some witty discourse, a fine snuff, and a tincture of sherry as we debate over these all-important matters here only on Comic Book Fight Club. You can find the show at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes by searching for Comic Book Fight Club. Please also join us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash comicbookfightclub. Okay, I'm back now, and not really continuing my discussion about Batman Dark Victory. Because, at least for the moment, I mean, I, I really feel like I've said my piece about that. But, you know, I've looked through my little schedule here, and I don't really run the type of podcast that's likely to take a whole lot of, or at least create a whole lot of, you know, anniversary retrospectives of the release of this movie or that comic or anything like that. That's just, historically, has not really been my thing. You know, now, yeah, there are exceptions to that. Like episode 99, I used that as sort of a springboard to talk about 
Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, which came out back in 1999. And so there was a little bit of, uh, I don't know, literal connection there, I suppose. But it wasn't... That's just not something that's really defined the type of show that I run. But at least at the time that I record this, it is July of 2015. And it feels to me like I need to acknowledge the fact that Batman Forever came out about 20 years ago at the time that I record what you're hearing right now. And really the reason for that is because I've got a lot of positive memories about that summer. And in a weird kind of way, Batman Forever is directly related to some of that stuff. You know? So... Anyway, here we go. To really understand uh, the summer of 1995, you got to go back to the summer of 1993, which was, that was an awesome summer all by itself. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's just really not what we're talking about. But the summer of 1993 was kind of a watershed in a lot of ways. Basically, you know, I've heard a lot of stories from people about, you know, how their parents shipped them off to summer camp for whatever reason, and they just had miserable experiences there. They hated it. It was no fun. It was, it was just it was a fucking nightmare. You know, it was terrible. And in the summer of 1993, I got sent to a summer camp myself, and I, guys, I gotta be honest with you, dude, I did not have a bad time at all. This was fucking awesome. You know, I got to ride around on horses. I got, you know, it was up in the mountains in Texas. Yes, Texas has mountains. Sort of. And we just, I just remember that was a very fucking fun time. It was, it was awesome. You know, and I look back on, you know, the kid that I was before I went to that summer camp and then the kid I was when I came back. I and mean, I really do regard that as a very growing, very maturing type of uh, experience, you know. I just thought it was friggin' awesome. So that was the summer of 1993. I mean, a bunch of other shit happened that summer, but fuck it. That was really, to me, that was sort of like the major event of 1993, in the summer of 1994, similar type of thing. I went to that same summer camp, and if anything, this one was even fucking better, you know? It, I don't think I had, like, the same type of growth curve, but it was somehow I just felt more comfortable in my own skin by that point because, you know, I'd finished up the seventh grade. I was on my way into eighth grade in the summer of 1994, and... I don't know. I just, I was a little bit more self-confident, probably because of that first summer I'd spent. And like I said, I mean, the second one arguably was even better. Among, you know, the usual things that I did, you know, things like riding horses and all that kind of stuff. Um, also shot a lot of guns. I shot, uh, there were, let me think, there were handguns, there were revolvers, rifles, shotguns, pretty much anything that's legal for citizens to own. I pretty much shot during that 
little experience. And what I find is that, you know, there's a group of people out there who are horrified to discover that children are shooting guns at targets and stuff, and for some reason that's a source of alarm for them. I don't really understand that. I don't relate to that. I don't believe that. If you're one of those people, well, you know, I'm sorry you've had a very sheltered life, I'm, but I'm not sorry that I had occasion to shoot a shitload of guns. So, and that's pretty much what happened in the summer of 1994. It's just, it's fucking awesome. So then you get into the summer of 1995, and I did not go to a summer camp as such. I went to tennis camp. Basically, my parents, rather than sending me back to that same summer camp, they realized that, you know, times are changing, my life is changing, their finances are changing. And so they needed to send me someplace that was a little bit less expensive and also something that I'd probably get more, a little bit more like practical day-to-day -day value out of, specifically tennis camp. So I ended up at tennis camp at a Texas A&M university where I played against members of the A&M tennis team, right? People who went to college on tennis scholarships were there to kick my ass all over the tennis court. Now, I know for a lot of you that may be very surprising. You know, if you know anything about me and how sedentary a life I used to lead, or I still lead, actually, uh, it might be surprising to find out that I used to be a member of, the, of my high school's JV tennis team, right? But, in fact, I was. And um, so... For once, though, that was really not, like, the high point of my summer, you know? Um, but fuck it, we're going to talk about it anyway. Uh, basically, in the seventh grade, for reasons I can't say I fully understand, I decided to join the football team, right, at my junior high. And for those of you who don't live in Texas, I'm not sure that you completely understand what a birthright football is around here. But there really is nothing else. I mean, yeah, I guess basketball's a, uh, a big deal. Yeah, maybe, I guess baseball's a big deal. Football is the shit around here. And so it's almost like a, a, a Texan kid's rite of passage, I would say, that, you know, to at least consider playing football. And, you know, both of my older brothers played football, so fuck it. Why not, right? And in short order... I found out that playing football was just not for me, you know? And um, actually, there's a, there's a, a well, fuck it. I, I, I better actually take this divert, this sort of uh, tangent, because it actually does sort of relate to the topic in a weird, fucked up, kind of retarded way, right? Um, you hear all the time about how certain types of people get caught up in these cycles of violence, right? And what will end up happening is that they have this one little moment that escalates and it escalates and it escalates and it repeats and it repeats and it repeats and it's, it's fucking impossible to get away from it, you know? And in a weird fucked up kind of way, that was sort of the situation I found myself in when I, uh, you know, when I joined the football team in seventh grade. 
I don't know why, but there was this one kid who gave me a never-ending amount of shit every time he set eyes on me. I, I don't know why. I'd never seen this guy before. I'd never talked to him. I did not know him. But for some reason, he took it upon himself when we were in the seventh grade and in the locker room to talk shit. Now, you need to understand something. Um, when that, this is the seventh grade when this happened. Now, like I said before, I went to this summer camp in the summer of 1993, and that really was like a ball-dropping type of experience for me. You know, I really did feel like I grew a lot. When I was in the sixth grade, you know what? Somebody talking smack, I might have just been a little too timid to do anything about it. You know? Things change. So that's sixth grade. But in seventh grade, I was, you know what? Not really willing to put up with other people and their bullshit anymore. If somebody said something I didn't like, if they pushed me, maybe I'd push back. So here comes this guy. I'm just going to call him Dick. You got Dick who uh, comes into the locker room and he's just on the fucking warpath, you know? Cursing at everybody, throwing shit around, just making a real ass of himself, right? And, and then dude turns his sights on me. Like somehow I'm the source of all of his problems and stuff. And just starts talking a salty line of trash. Well, I'm not going to tolerate that. So, shall not repeat what I said, but it involved questioning his personal hygiene, his maternal lineage, and his likely destination in the afterlife. He took offense to that, as might be expected, and before I knew it, we agreed to just march right into the bathroom that was attached to the locker room, and we'd figure out maybe new ways to communicate, right? Now, guys, I'd fought my brothers pretty much every day growing up, but I'd never, like, really been in, like, a real fight fight with other, with other people before, except for family. And so I really wasn't sure what to do. And pretty soon the uh, decision was actually taken out of my hands. The guy rushed me, pushed me up against the wall, and lifted me bodily up off of my feet, you know, up against the wall. And uh, I didn't know what else to do, so I struggled free, landed on my feet, and punched the guy right in the face. They say that the dictionary definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. By that standard, then, I would say that Dick is insane because he rushed me, again, pushed me up against the wall, and lifted me up off of my feet, again. I struggled free, again, landed on my feet, and then punched him in the face, again. Then he went in the stall, a bathroom stall, and just cried. Now keep in mind, this was not done like just the two of us one-on-one. -on -one. There was like a crowd of people who were watching, right? And so this guy was just mercilessly harassed for, I think, the rest of the school year. I don't think he ever really lived that down. So there was that.
and thus began a cycle of violence that it took a very long time to break out of, right? Because what happens is, at least at the time, I don't know how things work for, you know, kids these days, but at least back then, you know, if you got in a couple of fights, eventually you would develop a reputation and somebody decided, hey, they want a shot at, at the title, right? They wanted, you know, you had a reputation, they wanted to challenge it. And so it felt like every time I turned around, there was somebody out there who wanted to pick a fight, right? And so I was getting into fights, I shit you not, like all the fucking time, all right? All of this because some guy shot his mouth off to me in the bathroom. And guys, I promise, this does relate to Batman forever. I'm going to get there. This isn't just meaningless bullshit, I promise. Anyway, and, and another thing is, I'm not exactly proud of any of this stuff either. Believe me, I am not bragging. This isn't something that I hold my head high up about, right? Certainly, I don't want to sound like some kind of internet tough guy. You know, trust me, not that guy. But nevertheless, I found myself in this situation where people were picking fights with me all the goddamn time because I guess I developed some kind of a reputation that people felt like they needed to, if they wanted to make a name for themselves, they needed to come after me. And so I was just rowdy enough back then, just, just angry enough, I suppose, that anyone who decided they wanted a piece of me, I'd let them have it. And this kind of reached a fever pitch when, I'll spare you like the specifics of this story, but I ended up losing a friend, right? Um, this guy and I, he and I, we were, you know, good friends, got along really well. And then one day, again, I'll spare you the backstory here. He and I just, we're not friends anymore. And so he decides he's going to start giving me a hard time, talking shit, pushing me around, all of this stuff. And, you know, look, I mean, I had slept in this guy's house. I'd eaten his food, all right? I didn't know how to have a fist fight with somebody that, like, on, a, on, on some level, I regarded kind of as my brother from another mother, you know? And so I knew that probably at some point he and I were going to have to throw with one another, and I just didn't want to have to do it. So... I found every excuse I possibly could not to have to th trade punches with this guy. And then eventually, I had no choice. And so, I found myself beating the shit out of this guy in his front yard. And whatever happened, happened. He did something. And next thing I know, he's got me on the ground. And he's choking me. So bad, it's actually, like, I'm st it's starting to get dark around the edges, okay? Like, that's how long he'd been choking me, right? I felt like I was about to pass out. So, and then from, I mean, because, look, guys, you got to understand, I went over there to settle a grudge match. This wasn't supposed to be a fight to the death. So, you know, this was a lot more than I bargained for. So, anyway, ended up uh, getting him off me. I beat him up a little bit more after that, and... A friend of mine, who was just hap another friend of mine, who happened to be riding by on his bike on his way to my house, because that's where this guy, this ex-friend and I were supposed to fight. He was on his way there to watch the fight. So I managed to get away, ran over to that guy's bike, hopped on the handlebars, told him, let's haul balls and get out of here. And that's what my friend ended up doing. So 
I don't know that he saved my life, but maybe he did. Um, we'll never know. And so, for those of you who have never actually been in a fight before, and I don't mean like you just trade punches with somebody, I mean like a real fight before, um, you don't exactly get to do that for free, right? It wasn't exactly an unusual experience by that point for me to come home with just like, you know, bruised, cracked, and bloody knuckles and stuff just because of what I had to do to get home in one piece, you know? But like the idea of, I don't know, like just coming home just as beat up and sore and chewed up as I was, that was a little bit of a new experience, you know? And I was very sore, especially the next day, which is when this ex-friend of mine, his toady, decided he was going to make his move. You know, he was going to come over to my house and, I guess, do physical harm on my person. Now, keep in mind, guys, on my best day, like the best day I ever had, like me and a fight with this guy, it's 50-50, you know? This is not my best day. This is the day after I got the, uh, I'd gotten chewed up, and all this stuff in a fight with somebody else. You know, this guy's this guy's friend, my ex friend, and it was just not very good timing. But you know, you don't always get to choose with this stuff. So anyway, um, he came uh, he came to my house because you know it's like he didn't know where I lived came to my house, and uh, my older brother answered the door, and this idiot told my older brother that he was there basically to beat the piss out of me, and so, you know, my brother was about ready to beat him to the floor, and then the weirdest, most fucked up thing happened, right? You hear all the time about conflict resolution, you know, talking out your differences and stuff. But at least in the world that I lived in, people did not talk out their differences. You know, either you ignored one another or you, you, you punched each other in the head. It's usually one or the other. The idea of talking out your differences, the hell's that ever worked? But even so, my mom decided to give that a shot. You know, women tend to be somewhat natural peacemakers. So, she grabbed this kid, pulled him inside the house, gave him a plate full of cookies, and said, exactly what is your malfunction, you know? And you know what? I will be damned. We did not part from this experience as being friends, all right? Don't misunderstand me. But it was finally over. You know, this cycle of violence that I'd found myself in, where I was getting into at least one fight every week with somebody or other, it was finally fucking over. And I gotta tell you guys, like, towards the end of this thing, I mean, there's nothing fun about it. There's nothing cool about it, you know? Uh, it's just, it's fucking scary, right? You're fighting somebody, and I'm sorry, there's nothing... I mean, I know the, you know, like, the way that they do it in Hollywood and stuff, it's always supposed to look a little glamorous and, and whatnot. Guys, there's nothing fun about it, you know? Scary as fuck, actually. And so... You get to a point, though, where you're actually used to it. And that's when it's really scary now. You know, when you're not scared anymore. You know? you It's almost like you don't care about it anymore. You know? When you don't... When you, when you find yourself in this kind of fucking insane situation, 
and your adrenaline isn't up anymore, you know, that's not enough to, you know, really get your blood pumping. On some weird, fucked up psychological level, I'm sorry, that's what's really fucking scary to me, you know? So, that was the baggage, as odd as it may seem, but I promise there is a connection. That is the baggage that I brought with me when Batman Forever uh, premiered, right? When, when uh, that movie came out, that was pretty much where I was, just as a person, you know? And the Batman that we see in uh, uh, Batman Forever, this is a guy who, in this one aspect, I mean, I, I'm not trying to make it, again, I don't, look, I really don't want to sound like I'm one of those internet tough guys who tries to tell everyone just how, just, you know, what a badass he is. No, I'm just saying, I, if anything, it's actually the total opposite. I, this was an uncontrolled, unwanted cycle of violence from which I could not escape, except by, of all things, my mom suing for peace, right? When I was 14 years old, that's how it happened. So, anyway, lucky for me. So, like I say, that's the baggage that I brought in with me to Batman Forever, and one of the things that I remember realizing as I was watching this movie is that's exactly where Batman was at the time of that movie. Because if you ask me, you know, you, you cannot separate Batman Forever from Batman and Batman Returns, right? Those two movies precede Batman Forever. I don't care how different they are stylistically. Batman Forever is still a sequel to those films. And it's picking up those storylines. And this is a guy, this, you know, Batman as we see him at the beginning of, of Batman Forever, this is a guy that's doing what he's doing, but he's completely going through the motions. He does not believe in it anymore. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, right? And he's... He's got a sense of duty about what he's doing. There's obligation there. People are, are counting on him. He's just not personally invested in this anymore. More and more, there's this weird fucked up tension that's going on between Batman as a distinct psychological entity and what you might call childhood Bruce Wayne. This kid that lost everything really when he was too young to understand how much he truly had lost you know and so there's this weird sort of dichotomy back and forth of it all and this is personified by the Riddler stalking Bruce Wayne and Two-Face being out for Batman's blood and so he's pretty much getting nailed on all sides here and for the first time in this character's life the threats and the conflicts and all of the, the drama in his life, they're actually starting to coalesce. And it's even drawing in now other people, specifically Dick Grayson. And when Batman looks at Dick Grayson, he doesn't see... He doesn't see Dick Grayson as a person. He sees a little bit of himself. The same journey that he's gone on these past few years, he sees Dick about to start on himself. Dick is about to embark upon the exact same journey as Bruce Wayne. The same, just endless, senseless cycle of, of violence and at times death. This never-ending 
thirst for vengeance. And it starts with Two-Face, but Bruce knows it's not going to end there. It can't. It's, there's going to be... Two-Face is going to be the first in a long line of Dick Grayson's murders. And so what he's trying to do is head this off at the pass. He has to find some type of a way to channel all of Dick's anger and uh, his, his sense of vengeance. Find a way to pacify that. But here's the thing. Bruce no longer believes in what he's doing. So it's, it would be completely anathema to him to say, Hey, why don't you join me in my war on crime? Bruce does this because he's got a psychological compulsion to do it. He can't stop. And on some level, he, there is a sense of responsibility to it that he knows that the city of Gotham is depending on him to be able to do this. But he does not recommend this as a career path to anybody. And so it's completely logical that he's not going to invite Dick Grayson along on, his, on what he's starting to think of more and more as this insane, hopeless quest that's only going to end in his own death. All right? There's, he's not going to do that to Dick. And so he's trying to find a way to defuse the situation, the most logical of which would be to recruit Dick into his army. But like I say, that's not an option. At least not in his mind. That's not an option. And so I don't know why, but for some reason, that, I guess that conflict there really resonated with me precisely because of how I'd spent the two years up to that point of you know people coming looking for me, for, uh, looking for trouble that I never wanted to have anything to do with. And then by the end, it, it had just become so detached to me. I mean, w when somebody comes looking for trouble and your adrenaline doesn't even go up anymore, you're not even scared anymore, your pulse rate doesn't even rise, that's a weird, fucked up, and I think kind of dangerous psychological place to be, you know? And that in a weird kind of way, I think, is where is where Batman is throughout most of that movie. And I just... I, I, my point here is to say that there's just... There's this amazing richness and texture to uh, Batman Forever that I realize that... Look, I don't expect everyone to pick up on it and appreciate it because, you know, at this point, I mean, I, I almost feel like, you know, Joel Schumacher... Batman Forever and Batman and Robin have been sort of vilified beyond all rehabilitation. But it does kind of blow my mind that, you know, there's so much meat to this story that it's like people refuse to acknowledge. I don't know. It, 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 it's hard to explain. But my point, though, is that I was, for reasons I didn't even understand, I was seriously fucking stoked to see this movie. And then when I finally did, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I saw uh, Batman from 1989, and that was that was a very, that, I mean, there's a there's a degree to which that was my first real exposure to Batman. That was the first Batman story I've ever that that I ever took in, and it was just this amazing, exhilarating, imaginative ride that. I would almost want to say that was for me what Star Wars was for you know the older kids, the older generation, you know. And you know, I was too young to have seen Star Wars, so seeing uh the 1989 Batman film when I was 8 years old 
that was a punch in the balls right there from which I don't know that my imagination has ever completely recovered, you know? And then you get into Batman Returns, which, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I remember really enjoying that film when it came out, but at the same time, I'd be lying if I told you that, you know what, this was the Batman movie that I wanted at the time that I wanted it. You know, it's really grown on me uh, over the last, I would say especially over the last 10 years or so, you know, uh, 10, maybe 15 years, it's really grown on me. But I don't think I completely got it. I enjoyed it as a Batman story, but I don't know if I completely got it. Does that make sense? And And so there was that. It was a little bit of a... I don't want to say misfire, but it, it, like I say, I just I didn't fully appreciate it at the time to the degree that I do now. You get into Batman Forever, though, and it's uh, on a weird, fucked-up level. This is the Batman movie I wanted at pretty much the time that I wanted it. You know? A year earlier and a year later, I don't think I would have connected to it quite as much. But it had to be at that point that perfect moment, you know, where Batman finds himself in a situation where people that he has no real problem with, these are people that he's got no beef with whatsoever, are gunning for him, and he doesn't know why, and he's kind of emotionally disengaged from the situation, you know, from the conflict. And, you know, that is a theme I completely fucking related to at the time, you know? For my own reasons, obviously. Not the same as his. Again, I'm not trying to sound like, you know, like I'm comparing myself to Batman. I'm just saying that on that one level, I feel like, you know what, I knew exactly where Batman was coming from in that movie, you know? And... no, I I didn't know what the movie was going to be before it came out. I just knew that I was seriously fucking stoked to see that film, you know? I remember the build-up to it, and the hype for it was a lot different than Batman Returns had been. This was... It felt like Tim Burton, he was making these sort of artsy-fartsy movies that had Batman in them. And Warner Brothers tried like hell to market those as event, like summer event blockbuster action films. But you could kind of tell from the trailer that's not totally what they were going to be. Batman Forever, this was just sort of pop fun. You know, yeah, there's meat to the story, but this is going to be big and it's going to be, it's going to, it's, it's spectacle. It's action cinema at its finest circa 1995. And I bought it. It was, it it was just very exciting. Like the, I almost kind of regard those, you know, the, those sort of hype marketing campaigns of my youth. I, I do have a, a, a weird kind of nostalgia for him, specifically because of the fact that I was a lot less cynical about marketing then than I am now, you know? And so it's a lot easier to buy into that line of bullshit when it's completely new for you. These days, that marketing shit would never work for me. But it did back then, precisely because of the fact that, you know, it was also new, you know? It was still a brand new thing to me. And so the idea of seeing, you know... uh, like Batman Happy Meals and, you know, these really cool-looking new action figures and holy shit, there's going to be a live-action Two-Face now. You know, and all this all this just really fucking fun stuff. It just looked awesome to me. And so, 
I just remember that summer, I just remember feeling very free. And to, just to tie it back into the movie from another direction, there comes a moment at the end of the film, we don't really see it, and I think there's a deleted scene out there which actually kind of sums it up a lot more clearly, but there comes a moment where the sort of fragmented Bruce Wayne character and this confused, disengaged Batman character are combined. They are now one psychological entity, whereas before they weren't. You know, up to then, Batman had always been this kind of confused, alienated outsider. And I think a little bit, just on a psychological level, I mean, the guy was, a, he just kind of had a screw loose. He was now unified, body, mind, and soul, in a way that he never had been before. You know, or if he had been before, not since his parents died. You know, this psychological divergence that had happened had thus been healed in Batman Forever. And when people say that, you know, uh, Batman and Robin was too campy, it was too light, it was too whatever. Well, guys, think about the character journey the char that Batman went through in Batman Forever. He's not going to come out of that as an angry, vengeful, driven loner, okay? <laughs> not in the cards. Now, you can, you can like... Batman and Robin, or you cannot like it. What you cannot say, though, is that it's not of a piece with what happened in, in Batman Forever. You know, this is not a character who's going to go through this much, I guess, psychological torment, and then this much psychological healing, and then start off right where he left. He's now Batman because he chooses to be. This is something that he's not cursed to do anymore. You know, this isn't penance. It's not a punishment. It's not a one-man war on crime. This is not a personal vendetta. This is something that he's chosen to, to be now. And because of that, of course, he's going to be just fundamentally different in Batman and Robin as he was in Batman Forever. And I'm getting off topic. The point is, he has that moment of fulfillment in Batman Forever, right? Where, for the first time in his life, he's now got the ability to choose this isn't something that's being forced upon him by sort of external factors. This is a choice that he's consciously making. He could, con he could just as easily have consciously not made it, right? He could have just been just Bruce, the guy, and that would have been okay with him for the first time in his life. And so, again, that, and, and that's a very just freeing thing for him. You know, he feels whole, as a result of all of that. And guys, again, same thing for me. I felt so fucking much better because it really did feel like, you know what? This, all of this craziness that I'd experienced for the last two years, I'm never going to have to do that again, you know? And so, as a result, I haven't been in a fight since then unless I've chosen to be. And I've always chosen not to, you know? I don't need to have broken knuckles ever again, you know? I've <laughs> had enough of that. So, and it, it, it was just... I'm not trying to overstate it, but it's just, it's weird sometimes, you know, how you connect to these, to how you connect to these comics that we read, these, these uh, films and these shows uh, that we watch, you know, it, you can't always help the baggage that you're bringing to the table. But I mean, I look at Batman forever and I've always just thought, you know what? in a weird, fucked-up, comic booky type of way, that is a 
not a bad little summary of everything that I'd been through up to that point, you know? And then, you know, at the end of Batman Forever, really, the sky is the limit now for for Batman and what he can be as a person now. And I kind of felt the same way for myself. I mean, now the sky really is the fucking limit, you know? And so I went off, you know, after seeing the movie, it was, I want to say it was like the week after, I ended up going to tennis camp, but of course I got the shit kicked out of me uh, by um, the uh, tennis players at uh, Texas A&M. Because again, I mean, these were people who were, you know, they went to they went to Texas A&M on a fucking tennis scholarship that takes more than a smile. Of course they're gonna, you know, kick the snot out of you, you know, in a tennis match because that's how good they are, you know. And so, just to be able to get a point on them you have to get so much better yourself and i just remember that summer as god that was that was just so much fun you know there was no darkness to it there was no it was just it was just it was fun plus i was i was going to be going into high school in the fall and that looked like it was going to be pretty cool hey who knew right but i'm just saying that at least at the time it looked like it was going to be you know kind of cool and um i just remember really enjoying that just that whole summer you know and it and and again it just feels like so much of that is related to uh, batman forever and i can't think of the summer of 1995 and not think of batman forever and i can't think of batman forever and not think of the summer of 1995 you know and just the thrill of it the excitement of seeing like i don't know um like, I wasn't a big MTV kid, you know? Never was. That was just never my thing, ever. But somehow, I saw the first the music video for... I think first it was... Seal's Kiss from a Rose on MTV. I think that came first. And... I just remember thinking, you know what? This was something that really wasn't possible with... Batman Returns, that it just wasn't that commercial a film when you think about it. You know, I mean, yeah, it had Batman in it and everything, but, you know, Tim Burton didn't really want to make an overly commercial type of film. He wanted to make a Tim Burton film, for better or for worse. I think it's for better. But that, you know, that really was not possible to do with Batman Returns. And, yeah, you had that cheesy Prince soundtrack for the first Batman movie that Tim Burton did, but even at the time that it came out, I thought that was just fucking... It was annoying, it was cheesy, it was just fucked up stupid, I thought. You know, look, if anyone listening to this, if you enjoy that soundtrack, will you tell me who won? Because now you've got a soundtrack you can listen to anytime you want, and it's sort of it's sort of this Batman concept album by one of the great songwriters of all time. You tell me who won that argument. I'm just saying it ain't for me. All right? So, But if you're a fan of that, well... Not trying to piss you off. I'm just letting you know what my opinion is. And so, like, I guess what I'm saying is, like, the idea of Batman as a... Not just as a commercial property, but an interesting commercial property to me. That was kind of a new idea. You know? To me, anyway. Because, like I say, I mean, you really couldn't do that with... You couldn't have, like, uh, a whole lot of uh, MTV whatever with Batman Returns and the MTV bullshit for... The first Batman movie just really was not my thing. I've never been a big Prince kind of guy. So, 
you know, to see this, uh, to see like Kiss from a Rose and everything, and it's like this is a song that I, to this day, I think is really cool. I like it. I think it's a pretty cool song. And it's got all these neat little clips from the movie, and that's just fucking awesome. And then you had U2's Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, and that was, God, that's a, just a cool video, too. And, uh, you know, the animated sequences, it looked like Bono was, he was like the fly from Zuropa. So I don't know what the hell that was about, but uh, anyway, that's kind of weird, I guess. Or, wait, was the fly, was the fly from... Zuropa, or was that Octoon Baby? Fuck, I can't remember which one now. I'm too lazy to look it up, but whatever. That's fucking, that's who we look like, alright? So, fuck it. Anyway. So, uh, that was, I just remember really enjoying that video. You know, the Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me video. That was friggin' awesome. And again, it was just, it was something that I felt was so foreign to what, you know, Batman-related music videos had been up to that point. It was... Yeah, just I really, I, I really like that, and I don't know. I just look back at that summer, and on the one hand, I mean, I don't want to be all pretentious about it and say that was the last time I felt I really felt like a child, but you know, because I, I, I don't know how many children really get nearly choked to death by somebody who used to be their best friend, but uh, you know, fucking whatever. That's what happened. And, um, and I don't know, I just, it felt like there was just a lot of, uh, I'm going to sound weird, childlike innocence that was just sort of missing from subsequent summers. You know, I don't re- really remember, like, it just feels like the summer of 1995, in a lot of ways, it was kind of like the last hurrah, you know, and then after this, you know, you really are starting to become an adult now. Because, like, 15, I mean, let's face it, you know, you really are getting pretty close now. And so, I don't know. That's just the way that I always felt about it. So, But, like, that summer of 1995, I was 14. I had this badass Batman movie that it seemed like I was the only one among my immediate peer group that I saw the brilliance of it. I mean, yeah, you know, there are some weird parts of the movie. I'm, you know, certainly willing to acknowledge that but i mean there are just so many good ideas in that film that i don't see why i should overlook that just because some just because somebody out there doesn't like the fact that batman has nipples in a suit dude if it's really that big a deal to you watch a different fucking movie okay i mean i guess i don't understand why it is that you know people can't follow a story or analyze a character or just or whatever you know, why does everything always have to be so goddamn superficial? I mean, are you really that fucking shallow? Do you just not have the brains to analyze this stuff? Is that what your problem is? You know? Like, I don't know if any of the rest of you ever feel that way. That's just kind of the way I feel about it. So, anyway. So, I guess my point, though, is that, you know, 20 years of this movie, and, you know, I just like the fact that there is a movie, a Batman movie out there, that's fun. This is just a fun Batman movie, and it's it's got some depth to it, like I say. But, you know, it's Batman doing all of this crazy shit. He's hanging off of helicopters. He's fighting, you know, all of these, you know, all of Two-Face's uh, masked thugs at the same time, you know? He's banging Nicole Kidman. I mean, this is just, to me, it's like all the cool the cool parts about, you know, being Batman, you know, you got the Batcave, and he has, like, this secret little subterranean uh, network of tunnels that'll take him from, 
you know, the, the Wayne Enterprises building all the way back directly into the Batcave, just in case he ever needs to. You know, all of this just really cool. Like, the, I guess, like, the cool parts of being Batman, you know? I mean, yeah, it'd kind of suck to watch your parents get shot to death in front of you. Definitely, that's that's the case. But I do think there's also a kind of cool aspect of being Batman, and Batman Forever really captures that, you know? And uh, I just really enjoy that movie. But more than anything, I've just got a lot of fucking nostalgia for that summer, you know? The summer of 1995. Because and in, in so many ways, it just it felt like the sky really was the limit, you know? Anything was possible. And I don't know. It just... Fuck it, I'm rambling. Anyway, so... Um, but this felt like a good place to... Because of the fact that I'm doing so many of these mini-series and whatnot. Mega-series, really, in a lot of cases. There's really not a chance to put this into any other episode. I mean, this was really the only spot I... Really the only opening I had to do it. So, fuck it, I'm doing it. So, anyway. Yeah. I think that's basically it for me this week. So, um... As to next week, I'm going to be joined by John M. Wilson so that he and I can talk about Superman, Earth One, Volume 3. So uh, that should be a lot of fun. Um, basically, uh, at the, uh, he and I recorded this actually months ago. I think it was like this, actually the summer of 2015 actually is when he and I recorded this. It was it basically it was not very long after Superman Earth One Volume Three actually came out, and the reason for that was because Wilson wanted to get his sort of contemporaneous reaction to it. He didn't want to come back to this as a retrospective thing. He wanted it to be contemporaneous. So you know that's why it was recorded so long ago. That's why you know it it, it was recorded when he was actually on the road. He was actually doing a road trip. So. Um, Anyway, I've never really podcasted with anyone quite that way before, so, you know, just by itself, that's pretty fucking interesting. So, um, anyway, now I realize at the time that this is coming out, this isn't exactly 20-year anniversary anymore for Batman Forever, but fuck it, you'll live. So, um, anyway, so I think that's basically it for me this week. Like I said, next week, Superman Earth 1 Volume 3, joined by John M. Wilson, so I'll uh, see you guys then. Bye, everybody. Have a week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know 
You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual, and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.